Welcome back to the Rethinking Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Florian Kern. He is the head of the research fields Ecological Economics and the Environmental Policy at the Institute for Ecological Economy Research. We discuss ecological economics and talk about sustainable energy transitions. We also focus on what it takes to build a master's program. Which skills does a student need and how do you decide what should be included in a master's program to teach them? Next to that, we discuss growth and many other topics. Dive in and rethink economics with us. We're happy to have you. Hi, Florian. It's so nice to meet you. So what have you been working on? Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me today. Well, I, I, my name is Florian Kern. I'm based at the Institute for Ecological Economy Research, which is an independent research institute based in Berlin, Germany. Uh, and I'm uh, directing a group of 15 uh, people around here. We're focusing on ecological economics and environmental policy. So uh, in my day to day, I'm very busy managing, of course, the, the group of people, anything from finances to kind of personnel matters. Um, and of course, I'm also leading uh, and working on exciting research projects. Uh, and other than that, I, uh, I take part in senior leadership teams, um, team meetings, and uh, try to shape the, the institute uh, along with uh, my colleagues. So yeah, um, overall, I'm uh, uh, very busy, but it's, uh, it's a brilliant job and I uh, really enjoy working here. Uh, I've been here for about three years. And uh, before that, I've been based at the University of Sussex in Great Britain. So I've been there for about uh, 12 years before that. So most of my academic experience uh, was over there. Uh, and now I'm back in where I'm originally from. Okay. So how did you um, do research there? Or did you also lead a team in Sussex? Yes, uh, I was also um, leading a team there. Um, there is a group of people called the Sussex Energy Group, which is all about uh, how to transition to a more sustainable energy system. Uh, and I was one of the co-directors of that group. So generally that sort of mixture of um, getting into uh, exciting research projects, uh, as well as uh, doing some management. Uh, I was uh, familiar with that beforehand. And, uh, I, I really enjoy that combination of working closely with key people, trying to sort of help develop their careers, their thinking, their skills, uh, and then uh, as well as getting deep into my own research uh, topics. So I think that's a very uh, fulfilling combination. I was also doing some teaching while I was at Sussex, um, which was brilliant because we developed a very specialized and small uh, bespoke master's program for um, people who wanted to change energy systems and uh, think about what energy policies, what innovation policies might be for that so um, I immensely enjoy teaching students as part of that role um, because all of them were really really motivated uh, to make a difference in the world and really looking to get new knowledge and new ideas and new skills um, to change the world I think that's really the most exciting bit of being a teacher to inspire other people to pass on knowledge and discuss ideas uh, with these students. Uh, most of them, I mean, it was a master's program, so a lot of these students had gone after the first degree, got some work experience uh, in different areas of work and also um, different regions of the world. So also from our point, it was very exciting to meet the students, learn about their experiences, and then pass on some knowledge and discuss uh, new ideas with them. 
So that's, uh, I really enjoyed that part of uh, my job as well. Now I'm based at the research institute, as I said, so at the moment I'm not doing um, teaching directly. Okay, so do you miss it, teaching? <laughs> yes, I missed uh, the exchange in the classroom, if you know what I mean. So I always enjoy delivering lectures uh, or getting into seminar settings with the students with lots of interesting debates or we have seminars with external invited speakers and so on and so forth. So these are bits that I immensely enjoyed. Then there is the administrative side to teaching, of course, the marking, uh, and uh, that's less exciting. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so how is it different to be a researcher in a team or to be the kind of leader of the team of researchers? Yes, so that's kind of a, a two different levels. Um, I mean, I lead a, a team of 50 now and there my responsibility is to make sure that uh, the budget aligns, for example, so that we have enough research projects uh, for everyone, that we have enough um, uh, resources to do the work we do, uh, to think about who's going to work on which project, to help uh, apply for new funding, uh, and also sort of to discuss progress with people and their individual career directories and what skills they, they may need, um, strategies should follow. Um, so um, that's one part of management. And then of course, there's also the working directly in project teams where I uh, uh, lead a team of researchers a project that's trying to answer a particular question. Uh, there it's much more about sort of hands-on project management, uh, making sure that the project what it promised, uh, writing texts, editing texts, doing presentations, going to conferences, um, stakeholders. So it's a, it's a broad skill set uh, for this kind of role. Um, the master that you created, how did you start about creating that and what, what had to be in there to make it a good master? Yeah. So generally in the UK system, a master's degree is a, is a one-year course. So there's basically two terms of uh, taught courses, the term that is um, made for the uh, dissertation. And this is kind of analogous to other master's programs offered across the university. So that's the general structure we followed there. And then it's, uh, it's pretty much um, was a case of um, my colleague, Steve Sorrell and myself, thinking about the core um, curricular uh, content that we wanted to get across and then thinking about how to combine that into individual bits of knowledge, you know, modules with the credit structure so that it fits under the European ETS system and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, for, so I, it really starts with, you know, what's the skills that we want people to develop? What kind of skills do people need to make a difference? Uh, terms of sustainable energy transitions. Um, so that is what we started from. And um, of course, a lot of our uh, students end up in a very um, broad variety of different careers. So uh, when you set up a master's program, one of the core things to decide is first in sort of terms of the intake, as it, as it were. So, you know, what kind of degrees do people have to have as a first degree to qualify for this master's programs? But then even more importantly to think about what is the skill set that we're trying to teach uh, and develop in students and what sort of careers um, will they be embarking on afterwards? That's normally a broad mixture. So many of our students have gone on to a career in, in academia. So went on to do PhD, um, 
uh, went to a research institute or, or think tanks, but others have also gone more to the, the policy sector, work in public policy roles and governments around the world in different industries, from, from energy um, to economy, um, for example. So it's then thinking about the skill sets and the knowledge that you need to uh, or that you'd like to convey. Uh, and in our case, it was really a, a combination of um, core content on energy policy. So, you know, what is energy policy? What are the, the kind of instruments of energy policy? What are the goals of energy policy? Um, how has this been evolving over the last 20, 30 years? And how is this new challenge of, of climate neutrality, recent carbon emissions, how has that impacted on the energy sector and on energy policy? What are the uh, goals and how we can translate that policies. So that's one bit, it's the energy policy. But then there's the bit about innovation and, and technological change, which is obviously an important part of energy transitions. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, um, so um, that master's program was based uh, at an institute called SPRU, Science and Technology Policy Research. So it's really one of the most well-known um, institutes for uh, innovation, uh, thinking about innovation and innovation policy in the world. So innovation is then the, the second real component that is also differentiates this master's program from other master programs in the sense that, of course, you can sort of talk about energy and, and you know, there's much excitement in the world around, you know, heating technologies and uh, renewable energy technologies. Uh, but then there's a whole field of study um, called science, technology, and innovation policy. People have been studying how new technologies are evolving and what kind of um, public policy incentives are needed to diffuse these technologies. What are the social challenges of, of rolling out new technologies? What are the social solutions alongside the technologies? So that's a really important contributor. And then lastly, um, policy analysis, political science, to know about the political processes behind policies. So it's a combination of those three um, strands of uh, research and scholarship that uh, teach uh, our students. So what kind of skills does somebody then, how do you decide on the skills and which kind of skills do you then focus on if you want them to go either into policy, into innovation, research and academics? How do you, how do you decide what kind of skills are most important and how do you teach them as well? Because I, um, I, in my experience, universities haven't always focused on explaining us which skills they're teaching us, more on the knowledge that they're sharing with us. So how do you how do you do that? How do you make sure that the skills are what you focus on? Yeah, no, that's a really important question. And I think that is true uh, traditionally for most universities, most university courses. I think especially in the UK over the last decades or so, there has been more a drive towards um, making sure that there are sort of transferable skills uh, taught and also that these are made quite explicit to the students. Uh, and of course there are, you know, whatever role you end up with, there is a lot of background knowledge that has been taught and that you refer to sort of uh, on these uh, subject areas. Um, but then I think there's a broad range of, of skills that are um, uh, applicable in any of these roles, whether you go into public policy, whether you work in a think tank, or whether you work for an advocacy NGO, 
that is really to um, drill into the, the matter and, and ask critical questions uh, is one of those skills uh, uh, and uh, ask, okay, so where is the data to support this? Uh, where is the analysis? What was the methodology used to uh, convey this policy message? I mean, this is an important skill, whether you're the policymaker or whether you were an advocacy uh, role in an, an NGO or whether you work in a think tank. So to critically assess um, materials, um, to summarize and synthesize materials and develop policy recommendations from that evidence um, to even just to present Sort of, you know, if you if you work in a junior role in the ministry and you have a, a great new idea, um, but you're not able to summarize that in a in a policy paper uh, of two or three pages to say, you know, what's the problem that you're trying to solve, what's the recommendation that you have, and so on and so forth. So this is all things that we try to teach our students by uh, designing it into the assessments. So you know, in the old days, people at universities. Um, you know, mainly uh, were asked to write exams or, or you know, author uh, 15,000 word essays, essays or something like that. And for example, you know, in this policy analysis course, uh, one of the deliverables was actually to uh, work in a group, uh, pick a particular policy problem, analyze the problem, find uh, evidence, uh, judge that evidence, see where it leads you, what kind of policy or solution might be recommended, and then writing that up in a policy brief and presenting that to uh, Policymaker, aka the lecturer in this case. But you know, that's a skill set uh, that is applicable in a wide uh, variety of roles. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the, the skill set that you want people to develop needs to be written into the assessments. Okay. Of like that. And then, so the master is about sustainable energy systems or sustainable energy transitions. And that is one of the big topics in your own research as well, right? That's right. So what is that about? For people who don't know about it, how would you start to explain what it all means or what it yes. all entails? Because I think that's a yes. lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it's a fascinating area uh, that I've been working on on the last um, 15 years or so. And I think the core idea is fairly simple. The core idea is, okay, the way we produce and use energy at the moment is not sustainable. We have uh, a variety of problems with uh, starting from climate change, of course, the obvious one, um, you know, uh, societies need to be carbon neutral by 2015 latest, which means that we're no longer emitting greenhouse gases uh, into the atmosphere. At the moment, two thirds of the greenhouse gases that are being released into the atmosphere stem from the energy sector, from the way we produce and use energy. So that's anything from driving around in your car, to heating your home, to taking a shower, to uh, plugging in your computer using just now. So all of this, all of these um, kind of core needs of society require energy to work. And the question is, how do we produce and use that energy? Uh, and um, so that's the question of, okay, we have an energy system now, and it works really well in many respects. Energy is readily available. Um, uh, it's not too expensive uh, in many contexts, um, uh, but it's detrimental for the climate. There are also some issues, social issues around energy poverty. For example, there's uh, very poor households in the UK that have very high energy bills because they live in poorly insulated homes. So there are also a range of social issues that should be addressed. The idea is that an energy transition is basically a change in the way 
we meet our energy needs and that this is a system change that it's not about individual technologies uh, that we can use or not use it's not about particular business model for an energy company it's about all of these things together At the moment as I said, the energy system works pretty well and it's well aligned and there are policies to support all of these things and there are regulations and there are uh, established economic sectors provide uh, companies that provide these services uh, and all of that needs to change. And that's the idea of an energy transition. The question is then, how do we get from A to B? So how do we get from where we are now with our energy systems to uh, more sustainable energy systems of the future? Uh, and the process of getting there is, is, is this transition. Uh, and the idea in my research and also in that master's course that we were talking about is really that um, transitions have happened in the past. So obviously we haven't had electricity 200 years ago. So these things have happened in the past. There are historic processes. We also you know, didn't rely on cars for our personal transport. People were living uh, cities, the, the main means of transport was walking around, uh, cycling or uh, traveling by horse carriage. So clearly these things have changed in the past and they will change in the future. The question is, can we influence the direction in which this is changing so that we are moving to energy systems that are more sustainable? Um, or, and the second challenge is, uh, how quickly can we do this? Um, so there's a lot of research in my area on energy transitions looks at these processes historically. It says, well, you know, this has happened and these were the types of mechanisms that contributed to this change process. This is the time frame. And the overwhelming um, majority of these studies find that it's taken a long period of time, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. So uh, the second policy challenge then really is to think about how we can speed up these processes so that we get it there a bit quicker. Uh, and because we know, I mean, we have uh, the climate targets. The climate is not waiting for us to figure out uh, what to do about the energy system. We need to change that now and it, it can't take another 50 years. But if you, okay, so you're in the situation, you want to transition from A to B, but do you know what B is? Like, is there, like, what is that vision that you're moving towards because right now everything or almost everything is on gas like what are you gonna do where are you how are you gonna move to that vision but also what is what is that b that you're moving to yes no that's that's uh, that's a great question and uh it's so funny that you said everything is on gas uh because you're based in the netherlands and for the netherlands that's absolutely true so this is the first part of my response uh, to your question. Uh, so the first question is really an assessment of where we are at with the energy system. There are huge variations. You, you say in the Netherlands, yes, it's all gas. And that is true. There are some renewables. Um, but for example, Norway has a completely different profile where the vast majority of their electricity is coming from hydro um, power. So that's a very uh, sustainable solution. So um, uh, but at the same time, then they have, uh, as do the Netherlands, an oil and gas industry, which is, of course, a big emitter of greenhouse gases. So my, my first response would be this. What is the status quo is very uh, dissimilar across countries. So we need to look at, so what's the energy system actually like at the moment? Uh, one can think about the, uh, the systems a little bit separately to think about electricity. So you know, where does the electricity come from? Where does the heat come from? 
also then the transport sector is obviously one of the biggest users in most countries, plus the industrial sector. So it's it's a matter of assessing first the status quo, really thinking about okay, where are the biggest sustainability problems? I think then the second is about the broad direction of travel. And I think that is clear broadly in most countries because of um, the Paris Agreement. So people have, people have countries have signed up to these international targets and they mean we need to radically reduce carbon emissions. So the future energy system has to be one which is carbon neutral in the long run. Okay, so that gives you a broad direction. And then, and this is the Very exciting broad one, though. <laughs> yes, and then, yeah, of course, and then we come to the uh, exciting part because this is also what my research is focusing on. Because then there are many options within that category of carbon neutral. Uh, there are different um, technologies and uh, pathways. We're talking about sort of pathways with the transitions. Um, and you know, a lot of modeling work is being done on different scenarios and what technologies do you need, when and how much of it, um, and so on and so forth. And this is incredibly contested within countries and across countries. So there are some countries, for example, the UK government a few years back had this idea of um, um, focusing on three core technologies. Uh, offshore wind, which they have been very successful with in terms of building an industry and really rolling out gigawatts and gigawatts of, of uh, offshore wind um, um, capacity. The second was nuclear, so a nuclear renaissance, so investing in your nuclear power stations, uh, which is very controversial uh, in other countries. Uh, and the third route was um, carbon capture and storage, so using fossil fuel technologies, whether it's gas or whether it's coal-fired power stations, uh, but then sequestering the carbon storing the ground. Uh, so th that's one particular uh, country which uh, has these three different pathways that we're all supposed to contribute to that um, sustainable energy future. Uh, and then one can, you know, take that at face value and look at the options and, and what's actually happened and what hasn't. And one can look at the politics. So as a research agenda, this is extremely exciting uh, in terms of how are these things being played out? Because, of course, there's all sort of lobbying going on by different interest groups that want to see their pathway um supported by policymakers because at the end of the day this is also about of course a lot of taxpayers money that's being spent on these different options so it's not just that it's uh within society um it's contested in the sense that uh, for example the netherlands people have decided they do not want nuclear power or at least not no new nuclear power stations the same in germany many other countries around the world sweden and others um where people have basically said we don't want nuclear power to be part of a solution. And, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair choice um, by societies. Um, but yeah, in other countries, they're going towards that more nuclear future. So that's one thing um, in terms of the supply side. And of course, then there is kind of also an issue around the demand side of things, because um, many scenarios sort of presume that energy use is going to uh, going to continue to rise, um, which makes it uh, more difficult for this transition process because the quantity of energy you need overall uh, is rising and you need to replace the incumbent technologies with cleaner technologies. And of course, the bigger that cake gets, the more difficult that challenge becomes in terms of new investment, upscaling, production, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, uh, some of the most uh, radical energy scenarios are actually the ones that have much lower demand than is possible today. 
And that's interesting because many countries do not, you know, dwell on that too much, also governments and focus groups. Uh, but of course, that's one where uh, it's really not just about new technologies. I mean, some energy efficiency can lead to reductions in energy use, sure. But it's mainly or, or can be also about lower carbon lifestyles or lower carbon industrial structures. Um, what do you mean? So governments are now focusing on how to get more energy, but not on how to be more sustainable or how to use less energy actually per person. In a that's country. right. That's right. That's Why? true for most countries. Yes, because it's it's difficult. It's difficult politically to have a conversation about um, what is a good life and what do we need uh, to live a good life? And does it include a weekend break in Barcelona? I think, you know, in the current crisis situation, I think more people asking these questions. But, you know, before the, the corona crisis, I think most governments took it for granted that, um, you know, you want people to have a choice and we're free uh, sort of liberal uh, democracies. So we leave it to the market. And uh, if people want to use more energy, it's the job of the government to make sure that that energy is provided by the private sector. So it's not a question of discussing how people could use less energy beyond sort of uh, campaigns, you know, switch off the lights when you room. Of course, that's uh, uh, not controversial, uh, but it's also not a very effective policy strategy. I have to say. So what would then be a policy strategy or how could how could you do this in policy to make this a topic that people actually can and feel okay with talking about? Because it is a, yeah, I mean, <laughs> liberal country, it is a personal choice and it's your home and it's your behavior and should the government affect that? So how, how do you approach this? From policy perspective yeah it's a, it's a very difficult question um but i think i mean the first uh i think, think the first step would be to acknowledge that that is the case that i mean often modeling results are presented as this is the energy demand uh that we will have to meet in the future and therefore we have to do x right and then there's an argument about how to meet that uh demand uh, so I think asking that question in the first place and saying, okay, what will demand be like and why is it evolving in these ways? And can we have alternative scenarios where demand uh, reduces significantly? Um, I think is a first step to have a conversation about that. So what would that mean if energy demand would go down significantly? How could that be achieved? In which sectors are, of the economy are we using a lot of energy? Uh, and households are a major contributor to that. So, so that there's kind of, for me, there are two related uh, discussions, but one is about the household sector itself. And, and this is, at the end, you know, there are small margins to be made by uh, encouraging energy efficiency. Um, and, you know, policymakers have leverage there. I mean, this point about uh, choice. Okay, so, you know, we had energy efficient light bulbs on the shelves in shops, and no one was buying them. And we're still using incandescent light bulbs, which use five times the energy of modern energy efficient light bulbs that we have now. And at some point, the European Union just said, okay, this hasn't been working. You know, the technology is there. Uh, it's in the market. People can buy it. It's five times as efficient. 
but people didn't buy them because they didn't like the lighting color or because the they are more expensive. So the upfront investment was more. You were saving over the life of that light bulb, uh, but initially it was uh, more expensive than previous technology. So you know there are reasons for then saying, okay, uh, we take those off the shelves. It is no longer allowed to sell incandescent light bulbs in the European Union. You know that was a step that policymakers took and say, okay, so that's a very small, discrete example. But you know the question is. That, did, did that really affect people's quality of life? Is that really a, you know, a thing of social well-being being undermined that this choice is no longer available? Well, it was contested at the time, um, but, it's a bit oh, like yeah. the, the, but it's a bit like the smoking ban. These things are often extremely controversial until they come in, people get used to them, and then they're not even being questioned anymore. So I think what I'm asking for is, uh, first of all, to have a societal debate about that topic. You know, how could we reduce our energy consumption? Does it really need to go up? Uh, what, what are lower carbon lifestyles uh, that are actually desirable? Because I think that's, for me, that's the most important thing in this debate. It's about the question, what does a good life look like? And I mean, there are so many studies from around the world where it's actually not the material well-being after a certain point that matters for people's happiness. Of course, you know, if, if, if you can't afford to buy food, if you can't afford to, to um, uh, heat your home adequately, this is dreadful. And in those cases, you do have a need uh, for maybe more energy services. But that's not where the majority of European consumers are. And for those people, then the question is, what does a good life look like? And most of the time people will say, well, um, you know, my material well-being is fine. Uh, I work very hard. I'm very busy. And I'd like more time to see friends and family. Um, and so, you know, the, the weekend trip to Barcelona, as nice as that may be, actually, if we think about it, isn't a top priority in life. Um, so for me, I mean, it's uh, one could even have this discussion in terms of... Um, the obsession with economic growth, because that's the second part which drives this, uh, this these modeling results. You know, almost always these models assume a certain growth rate of 1.5% or whatever uh, per year, year after year, and therefore the energy that needs to be produced is growing and growing and growing. And if we take both of these factors seriously and say, well, but maybe there is lower carbon lifestyles that would make people uh, more happy than they currently are. Um, and then it's the same with growth. Um, I mean, there have been many reports, there have been very clever economists writing about, um, for example, prosperity without growth um, is a famous book. Um, so, you know, is it really uh, meeting societal needs to have more economic growth? I want to talk about that in a bit, but okay, first, great. I'm really curious. So how can a household or a person, because there is all this research and there is all this campaigning about like sustainability and climate, uh, climate and uh, carbon neutrality, but how can a household or a person that is like, I want to contribute to a more sustainable society, but I don't know where to start. There are all these people saying these big things, having these big ideas, but I'm just one person. How, where do I start and what can yeah. I do? 
No, that's a, that's a, a really good question. Um, and my answer to that is, is that that's one of the reasons why this transition perspective is very uh, exciting to me because it takes the energy system as a system into consideration. So that includes people, that includes demand, um, but it, it basically says we need a whole system change. It's not just the choices people make in the supermarket when they be, buy a new light bulb. That's an important part, but that's a, a small uh, contribution. So yes, you go and you buy the latest generation of energy efficient light bulb. And when your fridge breaks, you buy a new fridge and you make sure it's it's triple A rated, and it's very energy efficient. So that's fine. The, these are things where you can have a direct influence on your own demand. The second stage is then of course in using these products uh, and you know switching off the light uh, when you leave the room setting your temperature in your fridge to two degrees, not heating your flat to 22 degrees when you're at home and when you're at work all day or night. You, you know. So there are all sorts of behavioral issues that uh, people uh, can um, have an influence over their consumption. Um, but I think the bigger thing is that actually we need a, a system change. If you think about the, the energy system so far, it's very much focused on uh, large-scale installations, large-scale power plants that are supplying electricity um, to uh, households or industries uh, often far away from where the energy is produced, uh, which means that you need a, quite a large infrastructure in terms of um, transmission uh, infrastructure, which is an economic cost. And you also need uh, a distribution network um, to connect them to individual households. Uh, and you have transmission losses in that process. And this, you know, is a is an engineering uh, choice that was based on on economics because large scale production of electricity and centralized power stations will, is more efficient economically for the company supplying it. That isn't God given. Uh, so I think I think now, you know, uh, what does the future of an electricity system look like? I mean, in many countries around the world, uh, people are going towards smaller scale uh, decentralized. Uh, energy systems, electricity systems that are uh, supplied by renewables. And there are consumers. Mean, does that yeah. mean like for a village or for a, yeah. a street or a. Yeah, I'll, I'll come to that. So it's. Okay. Yeah, it's. Um, but the basic idea is that energy or electricity in this case is produced uh, decentrally. Um, so, for example, um, coming back to the householder and what you can do. I mean, one of the ways in which renewable energy has been spreading around uh, Europe is by people investing in local energy co-ops. So, what you know, a farmer, a farmer uh, provides land um, and they put on a wind turbine and a bunch of people that get together and make that investment together. The farmer provides the land, you buy the technology and you produce your electricity and you feed that into the grid. Uh, and so that's a local energy cooperative. This model has been extremely popular in Germany. It has overcome many of the problems of, uh, of social acceptability that some other countries were facing. Um, this was initially pioneered also in Denmark. So Denmark and Germany are two countries where this has really taken off. Uh, or where, you know, a bunch of farmers uh, get together and invest together in a, uh, some wind turbines on some of their land. Um, or a community gets together and invests in putting solar PV on the roof of a school or on the roof of a local church. Uh, and that's just a way in which 
uh, people can be part of that renewable energy uh, revolution, which they can also financially benefit, because with the subsidies provided by the government, um, this, these investments were also quite profitable, uh, especially really? at times like this, where you have very low um, interest rates provided by other sort of saving opportunities. So uh, this is actually economically a very interesting possibility. It's just not the energy system wasn't set up for that. It was set up for the large companies sharing the market and delivering it to the consumers and the consumers being passive uh, and buying this electricity. But now, um, I mean, the next step of that, so that, that, that that's that one model of uh, local cooperatives. There's also, of course, the um, practice of what we now call prosuming. So uh, if you own a house, you could put solar and you're on your roof and you can use that solar energy directly to power your appliances, your washing machine, your dishwasher, charge your mobile, charge your laptop, uh, and then uh, sell the excess electricity uh, where you produce too much, which you don't use, to the grid. Uh, again, sell your electricity that you don't use to the grid? Okay. Yes. Again, yeah. you know, the, you know, it, it takes a lot of tweaking to make that work uh, technically, but also in terms of the financial rewards for that. How much are you going to get paid for that electricity, uh, and so on and so forth? But it has huge economic advantages in terms of not needing to uh, invest that much in transmission infrastructure because you're not transmitting electricity over long distances from central power stations. Um, it's it's much more localized. And to answer your question earlier, this doesn't mean that we're sort of ripping out cables and that there are sort of energy islands and a small village is completely independent and does not have any uh, need to sometimes also import electricity from other places. That's not what it means. It's not a, an autarky kind of system. Uh, things are still connected up because as we know, um, renewable energy is quite variable. For example, at night, you don't produce a lot <laughs> with a solar panel, uh, but the wind might be blowing quite a lot at night. Uh, and you, you know, so it's still a system where everything is, is is connected up into one grid, but sort of how the load within that grid is managed and how uh, where the electricity is produced is changing significantly. And as I said, so you know, you can do little things on on your own um, demand side, um, but you can also be part of that revolution by investing in energy co-op or by putting solar. Uh, onto your roof or by investing into a heat pump uh, to supply um, your heat. Um, so there are, and then maybe last point about this, which I was always telling my students, you know, the idea in energy policy and energy policy debates is, is always about people as consumers. So the consumers want choice and the consumers shouldn't pay high prices. But at the end of the day, we're not just consumers. We're also citizens. So if you think that climate change is a problem and that it makes sense that the German or the Dutch government signed up to the Paris Agreement and that they now committed to reducing carbon emissions to zero, then you know, it's also up for us as citizens to campaign and to take political parties to task with that and say, look, you've signed this. Tell us how you, what you're planning to get us there, because at the moment, we're not on a trajectory to get us there. So what are your policy proposals to get us back on track uh, and vote and campaign on that basis? So that's also something people, households can do um, and is an important part of that um, change process. But how or where does this then get stuck often? Because I do know that, for example, the Dutch government, 
they are in the Paris Agreement, they want to reach that, and they, they are building all these, like, uh, sustainable, like, solar parks, windmill parks, but then an international company comes in and takes all that energy that was supposed to go to households and then uses it for their, uh, like, technological, like, what they need for their energy. And then they can say they're sustainable, but it doesn't actually go to the Dutch households. So where in the process does it often go wrong or go that it stops working kind of well in the <laughs> sense of stops working um i mean the netherlands as far as i know has extremely stable supply so uh in that sense there isn't a case of it stopping in the in the same sense, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm not making a joke. It's a serious point because, uh, of course, in many developing countries, energy access is a, is, a, is an issue, and there's a huge challenge about electrification of of, of rural uh, places in many countries. And there are some countries that have made huge progress in connecting up villages and getting modern energy services to people. So it's not at that level that we're talking about. So there is a service. Um, so that's why I, I, I wasn't quite aware of what you were talking about in terms of companies taking for themselves and not providing it to the consumers because you do have electricity and you do not have blackouts. So in a sense, in that sense, demand is being met, which is, of course, you know, for energy policymakers, that's one of the key priorities, uh, mm. energy security. So we have to have a system where people uh, flick on the, the switch of light and the light comes on 24-7, whole year round. And we, we have that in many um European countries, but not so much in other parts of the world, which is why it's an important policy agenda. Because our course was, of course, uh, also this reach is, is, of course, global. Um, so, of course, there are major issues with that. So that's not a problem so much in the Netherlands and many parts of the European community. Uh, there are problems in terms of access of energy service. I mean, the cost of it for certain disadvantaged consumers, energy poverty. So how does but, this, do, is it now for uh, developing countries, is it easier to transition straight into sustainable energy or is it that they also go into gas and then they try to get into sustainable energy is there a different path for them than there yes. was that, in the past that's uh, that's another great question yes so there there, there has been a, a huge debate in, in the past about whether there are sort of stages of development and countries would go from you know a very um wood-based uh, uh, rural economy where people use wood as a cooking fuel, very dirty and so on and so forth, and maybe kerosene lamps for lighting. Uh, and then you sort of upgrade to a modern uh, fossil fuel-based industry structure uh, where you supply electricity, um, you can also use electricity for heat or something, uh, and then transition um, um, away from fossil fuels. And this is kind of a, as it were a sort of catching up trajectory and mm. um, you could say that that was the case in many um, developing countries such as China where you know that has taken that trajectory that basically followed the western model and now um, you know built huge uh, world's biggest capacity of coal-fired power station to power um, their rise um, of energy use and um i think nowadays the second strategy is much more relevant which is kind of the idea of leapfrogging 
that it's not about catching up with sort of some of the industrialized countries, but that if you are building a new uh, infrastructure in terms of electrification, for example, from scratch nowadays, um, you would not go to fossil fuels. I mean, renewables have over the last 10 years have become so much cheaper and are now in many cases more competitive than the fossil fuel alternatives. So there's still countries, of course, around the world that also invest in coal and so on and so forth. But um, especially for rural electrification programs, some form of investment in renewables, whether that's biogas, whether that's um, onshore wind or whether that's solar makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. So I think we're now seeing countries move towards more the second strategy of leapfrogging, basically skipping that phase of very heavily industrialized uh, fossil fuel uh, electricity production towards a more decentralized renewable-based system, which is what we were trying to do as well. So what are the advantages or disadvantages of either having a, a working electricity system and now having the shift to a different kind of electricity or not having it all set up and then moving into one system that's immediately sustainable? How, what are, which one would you prefer <laughs> and yeah, well, why <laughs> yeah well in a sense it's not a it's not, it's not a, a, a question of, of preference, preference. Yeah. it's i mean in the traditional way we talk a lot about path dependence okay which is sort of the the the, the past trajectory is shaping where you can go in the future so i mean it's kind of interesting but in terms of the historical record on this in terms of energy um transitions you know for example the transition based uh, to to coal uh, where basically coal was uh, used in the uk and the industrial revolution for all sorts of applications also in industries as a, as a source uh, for uh, heat and production processes as well as for electricity so coal was for everything and the uk was one of the first countries to really roll out that te technology and uh, there's interesting historical studies that show that if you're a front runner in this it you're most wedded to it and it's most difficult to get out and yeah it takes longer than for other countries and partly that of course has to do with economic interests and uh, capabilities um if you're in front runner in something and you become a world leader in this this will be good business because you'll be exporting the, that technology those companies you know will have international markets uh, to sell to they become big they become powerful uh, they become very important to deliver that service uh, in a particular country and therefore you know in terms of negotiating with governments uh, have many arguments in their favor you know we're producing x you know uh, euros of wealth in the country we have x number of thousand employees in your country you really don't want something want to do something that threatens our business model um, because we're big and we're important so that in a sense is a can be a disadvantage uh, at the same time, for this leapfrogging strategy, then the question is, of course, where does the, the skills, uh, where do the technologies uh, come from? Um, you know, do you have to develop them from scratch? Is this something you can import from somewhere else? Um, if it's new and still expensive, that's difficult. Um, so there are all sorts of uh, uh, interesting processes to uh, and, and questions to think about. So you also, we also talked about economic growth a bit, um, but what is it about economic growth that keeps us all focused on it? And are there other ways of maybe going forward that's not economic growth, but maybe other 
Do we need to focus on growth? Do we need to focus on something else? Um, how do you look at that? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a long standing debate, at least since the 1970s with the, you know, the famous report for the Club of Rome, the limits to growth that was published in 1972. So it's been a long time raging this debate. And I mean, for me, uh, as someone who's interested in sustainability, um, I think one of the problems with the growth uh, obsession is, as I sort of hinted at earlier, that policymakers are so focused on that one metric. And um, basically, you know, when there is a doubt about whether a particular environmental policy, for example, is going to have a net negative impact on growth, policymakers become extremely cautious. So for me, in a sense, if we're serious about this sustainability discussion, if we're serious about really radical environmental policies in order to meet our global challenges, then growth becomes an obstacle in the sense that it prevents people from doing the right thing because they say, oh, no, no, well, we can't do that because of growth. We can't interfere with growth. And uh, I think we really need to turn this around, not thinking about we cannot do certain environmental policies because it will undermine growth. Because, I mean, the, the, the logic is the other way around. We need to preserve a planet that we as human beings can live on. We kind of need it. <laughs> because we kind of need it. You know, this is the slogan that they show in these you know, demonstrations. There is no planet B. So exactly. So we need to make it work on this planet. And, and that's the, and I mean, economic theories don't talk about that as much. Uh, only with sort of environmental economics, people started to take this a little bit more serious that actually even the economy, all functions of the economy depend on uh, the natural environment in terms of energy input, in terms of resource input, in terms of, uh, you know, climate services, oxygen we breathe, you know, that's partly produced by the trees around us. If we chop down all the trees, you know, so it's, we as human beings depend on the natural environment to support us. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're not undermining that to an extent that it becomes not uh, possible to live a decent life uh, on this planet anymore. And then the question is, okay, so if that's the perspective, if it's about, okay, we need to reach these environmental targets, then what is growth for? Or what is it actually? Because I mean, your question was, why is it so important? Well, it is a, is a very simple metric where you can have a number which you have available globally for each and every country every year. And you can compare and you can say, great, we grew 1.8%. That's much, much better than country B that only grew 1.2%. So it's an immediate sort of metric of success of policymakers and of the competitiveness of the economy task is always to grow and to grow more than others. So it's relative gains that really matter in terms of this logic. Um, and policymakers are extremely wedded to the idea that um, this increases well-being. And in one sense, this is true. It's meant to measure economic throughput. Um, and it's often equated with employment. And of course, it is the case that if you have very high growth rates, we often see uh, an uptake uh, in employment numbers. And of course, you could say, well, that is pretty important. We want people to have jobs. Um, and 
that's why recession immediately becomes a problem and why we are seeing all these stimulus programs now, why the European has this uh, green growth uh, agenda and so on and so forth with the European Green Deal is exactly for that reason. Oh dear, we're in economic crisis and now people are losing their jobs. So we need to create growth so that more people can find employment. Um, and that is of course important. We, we do want people to have uh, jobs. Um, the question is, I mean, it's, it's partly one of also distributional effects. So what we've seen in the labor market, of course, the last decades was a huge uh, sort of um, disparity emerging between um, people uh, on low paid uh, salaries and then people on top of the hierarchy in, in big companies uh, earning, you know, many times the salaries of, of, of normal employees. Um, so in a sense, it's more of a, in my view, it's more of a distributional issue about, uh, it's not, you know, we want a productive economy, uh, we want an efficient economy, um, but, uh, you know, this idea of, of trickling down that, you know, if the economy grows, everyone will benefit from it. And over time, we manage to uh, get rid of social inequalities or at least to narrow them, uh, I think it's really not borne out um, by reality. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of that in the economic literature over decades now to say, well, actually, no, it doesn't. <laughs> the, the, you know, uh, and there's also a lot of studies that show that it's actually um, not so much the absolute wealth people have, but it's, it's relative compared to others. So if you're a little bit better off, but your colleague is much better off, then you're not really happy. You're, you're not happy that you're a little bit better off because you perceive it as unfair because you, someone else has benefited even more from that development. So it's it's really interesting in terms of how also sort of social psychology plays into this and what does make people happy. And uh, there's been a long debate about, you know, um, okay, it's pretty accepted, I think, that uh, growth in itself as a metric isn't a very good indicator. Um, but it is simple, it is one number, uh, and therefore it's stuck uh, with policymakers because all the alternatives about, oh, we need to measure social well being, you get into huge fights about what are appropriate metrics, how can it be measured, and how can different dimensions be compared? Because that's the thing about you know, the growth thing. You add up all the activities and the economy in euros and you have a number and you compare it to the number last year and you say, great, we grew by 1.2%. But how do you, you know, compare uh, X number of people having, uh, not having uh, cancer with um, X number of people now having to spend 10% of their income on energy services. You know, these are, these are not comparable. Uh, and I think so that the, it's both the obsession with the current metric, but also the weakness in a sense of the alternative ways of measuring uh, welfare or um, social well-being uh, that makes it easier just to stick with the existing model. So how do we, how do we work with that? Because is it then better to completely change to a different one or is there like you said green growth um or another do we need to switch to another type of 
measuring growth in money or do we need to just stop comparing is that a way or we need a separate measure next to it about well-being next to economy how what is the best or what is the strategy to go forward with that yeah i think one of the problems is that there is not a broad agreement so i'll give you my version of this Sounds so good. so i think um in this debate, what has happened over the last decades was really that there are uh, two different camps. One is the green growth camp that says growth is not a problem. Growth is fine as long as we uh, manage to minimize um, the impacts on the environment. And the trick there is um, decoupling. Sort of we decouple economic activity from environmental destruction. So. They say, well, it's it's not a problem if we use more energy in the future, as long as that energy is produced sustainable, so uh, sustainably, so zero carbon. If, if then, if that's the case, um, it's fine, and you achieve, you can grow your economic output um, at the same time as as meeting environmental targets. So that's the kind of the, the green growth uh, position. And so the question then is one of governments incentivizing growth in directions that are more sustainable. So this is what the European Union is, is doing at the moment with the European Green Deal to say, okay, we are now in a recession. Uh, you know, many countries are hard hit by the Corona crisis uh, and we need to create new growth and we want to create growth in areas that are uh, suitable for uh, the environment. For example, growing renewable energy, investing in circular economy uh, model and so on and so forth. So that's the green growth agenda. Then there's the degrowth agenda that says, Actually, there's no empirical evidence whatsoever that we will be able to do this decoupling. This hasn't occurred. Where it has occur occurred is, for example, okay, so the UK or Germany managed to decrease uh, their carbon footprint, um, but they've partly done so by, by outsourcing industrial production to countries such as China. Then, you know, the, the CO2 emissions associated with the production processes of these products are actually uh, China's problem. and Figure, uh, feature in their uh, emissions accounting and now we as Germany have become cleaner so they say well th this doesn't make any sense it's about you know global uh, globally saving the planet so what we need to do is to uh, really constrain uh, material and energy throughput overall globally and therefore um, we need to stop this growth obsession and what uh, colleagues at the Institute um, have been doing over the last couple of years um, in the project that was funded by the German Environment Ministry, um, sorry, by the German Environment Agency, was to say, okay, well, let's look at the evidence for those two positions, because partly policy debate doesn't move forward because there are uh, proponents of both of these camps. They have mutually exclusive assumptions about uh, how the world works, and policymakers, uh, you know, get shouted at from both camps and end up not doing very much because they, or, you know, or, you know, siding with the green growth uh, agenda as in as an example of the year. So what, what my colleagues have been trying to do in this report is to say, okay, let, let's look at the evidence uh, for both of these positions. Uh, um, and can we actually uh, say that either of these positions is a good guide to policymaking? Uh, and what they found, they've done an extremely comprehensive review of, of evidence, and often there are no sort of empirical studies. It's often more modeling or, or theoretically guided analyses by 
uh, this can or cannot be done. And they actually uh, found that both positions aren't really able to support their claims by evidence and therefore concluded <coughs> at the end of the day that we're not sure um, whether this absolute decoupling is possible and in line with an accepted principle in environmental policy, which is called the precautionary principle, which means if there is a chance that something is very harmful, we ought to be doing something about it, even though we're not sure it will occur or it will be problematic. But so in line with this principle, my colleagues were suggesting, well, let's move away from this discussion, growth, no growth. Let's move to a model where we're not dependent on growth. So they call this the precautionary post-growth approach, which basically is saying, okay, we're a bit agnostic about this issue, but we are sure that we haven't seen enough evidence of absolute decoupling being possible. And therefore we should adjust our policies um, to steer our economy in a, in a direction where we are less dependent on growth. So that if it, this decoupling isn't possible in the long run, we're not dependent on it. So it doesn't have, very difficult social consequences. Uh, and this sounds very abstract, and I see you <laughs> being a bit puzzled, um, but it, it has real, uh, really demanding uh, implications for policymakers. So one is, okay, we don't really need programs that fund growth per se. Um, what we really need to do is to explore um, ways of economic organization, which are not depending so much on growth, and secondly, we really need to um, figure out a way to fund our uh, welfare states that are not dependent so much on growth. What do you mean with that? Well, at the moment, um, in many European countries, um, for example, um, your pension or your healthcare is funded through contributions through your employment. Yeah. Right. So if you don't have employment or you only take a part-time job, uh, you really suffer at old age. And if you invest in a private pension, capital-based pensions, it's also, you know, that you, so you, you save money and that money is invested somewhere. And what you want is returns on that investment so yeah. that you grow that money to support you when you're older and no longer have income uh, and therefore yeah you're investing it somewhere where it grows <laughs> okay yeah uh, so that's a capital-based pensionism that's problematic if if you know if you have a very for example in the uk i i lived 12 years of my life in the uk so there the system is that you have an extremely small state pension and something which you cannot really live on so what you have to do is to invest in a private pension. There are all sorts of possibilities of doing that. But if you go to the capital market and you invest capital somewhere, yeah, you are fueling growth. The German system for pensions is different. It's paid uh, by contributions. So the, the people who are drawing a pension now, this is not a pile of money that they saved somewhere and that sits somewhere in a bank or an investment scheme. This is money that is being paid right now uh, by people like myself who work. Um, so the problem with that system is when, 
societies yeah. age and you have fewer young people paying into the system and more older people so it, it, it's not the solution but i'm just saying the difference between those systems in terms of how dependent they are on growth being there and growth being high is very different so i think that's some of the uh, nitty-gritty that policymakers need to get into to think about how we can actually structure pension systems um, that uh, enable us to also live well when we're old without having uh, big economic growth between now and then. So I was wondering, I've been trying to figure out what what happens if we stop growing as an economy? What What happens if we stop focusing on growth and we either find something else to focus on or we move our perspective somewhere else, what would happen to an economy if they stop growing? Yeah. I mean, one of the concerns is with this idea of stopping growing is, as I said, is about employment and what do people work? Um, I mean, in a sense, already now, uh, there are huge problems with unemployment in many European countries. And then uh, it's temporarily a little bit better when there is a, is a higher growth phase. Um, and then there is, um, it is a bit worse if there's an economic crisis. So it's a very volatile system. And it doesn't mean that people are 100% employed at all times. Actually, there is a percentage of the population that find it very difficult to participate in that. So, I mean, uh, one of the ideas in this uh, degrowth uh, academic community and also uh, uh, sort of NGO world uh, proposing this is, is the idea of a universal basic income. And I'm not sure that's the solution. I just want to sort of suggest it here that, that it merits more debate. Um, that, you know, we have a lot of people who have jobs that are not well paid and that they don't like and where they really don't receive a lot of satisfaction from doing this job. Um, and so in a world where you have uh, universal basic income, let's say 1,200 euros, everyone gets, and you can live off that, not particularly comfortably, but it's enough to meet your basic needs. And then the question is, okay, so what would people like to do in addition to that? So their basic needs are met, if you want to uh, have more uh, material welfare, if you want, you need to do, you need to work. Um, but uh, maybe there are people happy with that. I mean, a lot of people working in the arts, for example, they don't make a lot of money with the current <laughs> economic system. Uh, and maybe that's also not their main driver. Maybe their main driver is to create art that is seen by thousands of people and that that makes them very happy. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm just saying that this is uh, one of the things that uh, one can think about uh, because it's also that there are certain jobs that need to be done. I mean, we will still need plumbers uh, that, you know, uh, clear out your system. If there people is people to pick up the trash, people to pick up the trash. And uh, probably what would happen in this economy is that these uh, jobs would need to be paid much better. So that people decide to take them up. They're not forced by economic necessity. Um, and also, um, if you already have sort of your basic needs met, and it's really an additional income from your job, I think people will be more choosy about what it is they do, but also how much they work. You know, coming back, back to this point I made earlier about 
you know, what do people actually, what makes them happy? And then people say, I'm too busy. I would really like to have more time to spend with family and friends. Uh, and I think, I mean, for some people, that is sort of the vision of a, of a no growth or low growth economy is really that, you know, you have your material needs met, um, but you have more time for yourself. You're not in this rat race where you're trying to get the next promotion and work even harder and working harder to be promoted, to earn more money, to then be able to buy a status symbol. Like in the Netherlands, I mean, as in Germany, people are very obsessed with their cars and spend huge amounts on having cars that drive them around, mostly sit in traffic uh, or not drive. Uh, I mean, it's sitting in front of the house or the workplace um, and people spend a lot of money on that and it sustains a whole industry. So in that sense, you can say, well, that's great for the for the German economy and you know, we're exporting a lot of cars. So that's a very successful economic sector. But at the end of the day, the whole business model is predicated on the idea that I need to show my neighbor that I earn a lot of money and therefore I buy a big car to show that to everyone. Is, is that really the essence of happiness? I need to move around. I want to be able to be mobile, sure. But is a is a car that costs fifty or seventy thousand euros really the the right means of getting there? Probably not. And so I think that's also, you know, when we talked about lifestyle changes earlier on, it has a lot to do also with culture and what it is that is seen to be important. And. Um, it is important for, to get from A to B, but you can do that by bike. Uh, you can do that by public transport. Uh, you can have new of light uh, weight vehicle, maybe electric vehicles. Sort of, there are all sorts of options of, of how to get around, but to work very hard, so you can spend a lot of money on a product that you don't really need, or at least not that specification of product, uh, is in my view, not really, a sensible way of organizing things that's but that's where we are at the moment and um yeah i think do you think this is changing with new generations that uh they care about different things or they care less about material things i i think so i think especially with a car ownership that is a generational development um where people are now less inclined. I mean, if you look at the statistics, for example, for what percentage of the population is doing, uh, is making a driving license, uh, you know, get a test and, and the license. And that um, percentage, at least in Germany, has been going down uh, over the years, which is suggesting that people are considering this and think, well, I don't really need to drive. I, uh, there are other ways of getting from A to B. Um, and um, and yeah, also this issue of the car being such an important status symbol. I think in the post-war period, you know, this is where this emerged: the car as a status symbol. And um, and unfortunately, this is also, of course, something that's spread globally. So it's not just you know the aspiration of of people uh, in Western European countries and North America, but across the world. Um, but I think. Yeah, in, in Europe, in many countries, this is actually going back in terms of desire to own a car uh, or at least to spend much money on sort of a big uh, expensive car to show off. I think it's going down significantly. I think young people are much more pragmatic. I think young people are also, in a sense, more sort of um, tech uh, several. And for example, uh, you know, car um, 
rental schemes. Um, you know, you have an app, you book a car. Why do you need to own one? I think that model of, of individual car ownership, that you know, ton of steel that sits in your driveway and costs you seventy thousand euros, that I think is a model of the past. And I think, um, yes, there I think there is a generational shift happening, which is very okay. welcome. Well, with every guest, we do a lightning round. And I basically ask a question and you just say the first thing that comes up. Okay? Great. All right. What is the skill any economist should learn? Interpret the data. Who do you admire or look up to in economics? Uh, Schumpeter. What is the question you want me to ask that I haven't asked you yet? Pass. <laughs> nice. Where can people find you or the things that you're most enthusiastic about if they want to learn more? Yeah, find, find the Institute, find our website and read about all the exciting research that we do. Okay. So what does a culture of sustainability look like? Pooh, different question. <laughs> According to you. <laughs> yeah, a culture of sustainability is one where we uh, have managed to close material energy loops towards a circular economy. Okay, and then final question. What is your advice to future economists? Think hard, explore things beyond uh, the neoclassical mainstream uh, and study hard and have a commitment to uh, making the world a better place. All right, Florian, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. Pleasure, thanks for having me.